you would please turn to the book of Romans, chapter 6. I'll be reading Romans, chapter 6, verses 3 through 11. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death that He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that you give my lips clarity to speak the glorious gospel of the life, the death, the resurrection of Christ on behalf of undeserving sinners, that we may be delivered and saved for all eternity by Him. And not only give me clarity, give us all ears to hear. Work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts this morning to see Christ more clearly and to see Him as the most beautiful reality in all existence. To the glory of His holy name. Amen. There is a danger to church. There's a danger to a Christian culture, to religion, to just another Easter Sunday. Yeah, I mean, I'm raised in Christian culture. My parents are Christian. I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. God raised Him from the dead. And many people feel that way, but they have never been encountered by the risen Lord Jesus. They have never been spiritually awakened to the reality of the gospel of Christ. Like what happened to Aurelius Augustine, you know him as St. Augustine or St. Augustine back in the 380s A.D. In his early 30s after running from God and having a mother praying for his soul for years. And he had been studying under one of the great preachers in Milan, Italy. 
He knew the Scriptures. He was one of the smartest guys in human history. But one day in a backyard, he heard a voice of a child. He didn't know if it was coming from the other yard or what. And it said, pick up and read. And he picked up Romans and he read a couple verses in chapter 15. And his life was forever transformed. He was encountered by Christ. Or like the great mathematician Blaise Pascal, running from God until his early 30s. But on November 23rd at 10.30 p.m. in the year 1662, he was forever and profoundly changed by Jesus Christ. Or John Wesley, after he had been a missionary to America, went back to England, and he went to a little undercover Bible study. And something happened. As he described it, his heart was strangely warmed. He was born again. He had finally become a Christian. Or like my experience in 1981 as a 19-year-old kid who had been raised in church all of my life, I never in my life remember a moment where I intellectually doubted that Jesus was God who became a man. Where Jesus was the one who bore the sins of the world. Where Jesus literally, bodily, historically, and physically was raised from the dead. Never in my life did I intellectually deny that. Thought it was true. But I wasn't a Christian. Until sometime early in 1981, I was encountered. And it wasn't just that I believe it was Something radically different. Wow. It's not just true. It's really true and pertinent to my soul. Or like Lisa. This morning, at the end of this service, we're going to baptize her. She had been thinking and grappling with Scripture and the Gospel and for many years, yeah, I'm not saying that's not true. I think it probably is. Something happened to her a few months back in December. But here's the bottom line of all of those experiences. Everything, and I mean Everything hangs on the validity of the claim that that dead, rock-hard, cold body of Jesus from Nazareth was resurrected into an immortal, physical, never-to-die-again, differing kind of humanity body. If it's not true, then in A.D. 33, probably in that year, that this dead, cold man came back to life forever. If it is not true, then Christianity, and every experience I just said, is a deception, and it is a farce. In our text in Romans 6, there are four stunning facts about resurrection. The passage it is referring to Jesus' body and soul. 
as a unified whole person coming up out of that tomb. And this passage is also referring to His people who will one day in the future, in the same way, come up physically out of the tomb. Body and soul. We're going to come back to this passage in a, in a few minutes. But what I want to do first is to set what we read here in Romans 6 about the resurrection, to set it in its larger context of reality. Which is also another way of saying to set every one of your lives in the context of the reality of what we read in Romans 6. Have you ever had the experience of conscious wonderment? Why am I here? Why do I exist? Why does anything exist? The biblical answer to that question is this. You exist because God created you for His glory. Isaiah 43, verses 6 to 7, puts it this way Bring my sons from afar, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory. That's the answer to our existence. Every human being is called to live unto, for the reflection of the glory of the uncreated Creator who has eternally existed in perfect holiness and goodness. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the fundamental reality. There is a Creator who is eternally self-sufficient, infinitely and gloriously happy and contented and needless. And He creates in order to go outward with the glory that He is. He creates humanity in His own image to reflect His perfections and His holiness as they enjoy Him forever. And thus, if it's true that the foundational reality is that we exist for His glory, then the second point is true. Our duty as human beings is to Receive that glory. Receive that goodness that He is. Trust Him that He knows how to make us infinitely and eternally and perfectly happy. But at the beginning of the Bible, something happened with our father and mother, Adam. And Eve, they rebelled, they sinned, they fell, 
and something got radically broken. It's called the human heart's capacity to hear anything I just said in the last four minutes and love it. It broke. And Romans 3.23 lays out the state, not just of Adam and Eve, but of every one of us, including my little guys. It says it this way. For all have sinned. Every one of us did exactly what Adam did because from him it was our nature to do so. We have all flipped everything upside down. The universe is not about God's glory. It's about me. Don't tell me what to do, God. You do not, this is the essence of sin right here, you do not really have my best interest at heart in your commands, in your ways, in your promises. I don't trust you to make me really happy. I will go my own way, thank you. Independence. Just think about it for a moment. When you hear the phrase today in our culture, the love of God. God loves you. Okay, here's the question. When you hear that phrase, does it mean to you that God puts you at the center of the universe and His love for you means, Joe, you are so awesome. I can't wait to hang out with you. I mean, I love you. Please let me love you and be in. Is that what the love of God means to you? Or when you hear it, that phrase, do you hear the truth that God puts Himself at the center of the universe? That His glory is first and foremost, and don't miss the second part of this, Thus, for our everlasting, perfect happiness, joy in Him. The true saving love of God is that He has made a way to take wretched rebels like me and to justly remove the penalty, and then to take a sinner, an ungodly man like me, and make me perfectly righteous in his eyes, not with a righteousness of my own, I have none, but with the righteousness of his eternal Son, Jesus Christ. And so God remains just in the cross of Christ while forgiving and embracing for eternity sinners. We've all fallen. And Romans 6.23 then lets us know the wages of sin, that means what we deserve, is death. That we are all in our sin subject to God's eternal condemnation. See, sin at its core is not how I treat other human beings. That's the effect of it. 
and why that sin against other human beings is sin. But at its core, sin is very personal between you and God who created you. It is the creature saying to the infinitely trustworthy, perfect, glorious Creator, No! I don't have any confidence in you to really be the joy I need. It is saying to the one who is the personification of faithfulness, you're untrustworthy. If we do not feel that, if we do not feel the gravity of what sin really is, we will never make sense out of the horror of hell. We will never make sense out of the bloody cross of Jesus. It will seem like a radical overreaction to my sin. This is how the Apostle Paul wrote to believers who have now come to faith in Christ in chapter 2 of Ephesians. And you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions the desires of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and we were by our nature children of God's wrath like the rest of mankind. We have all treated God with contempt. And His perfect justice is coming upon us. That is our biggest problem. Everything else pales in comparison. Bankruptcy is no problem compared to this. A bad marriage is no problem compared to this problem. Cancer, eating up your intestines, is no problem right now to this problem with the Creator. And that's what makes the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus such good news. You know that's what gospel means, don't you? Good news. Hear you, hear ye, hear ye. Something has transpired. Here it is. Listen to it. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 1 Timothy 1.15. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God became a human being in order to turn everything we have just seen, turn it around so that He would become the source of our eternal life, eternal joy in the forgiveness 
of the darkness of our sins. So hear ye, hear ye, the message of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. And then you say, then, then what? Who was saved? Let me give you two examples of how the Scripture answers that. In chapter 3, verse 19 of the book of Acts, Peter's preaching, what do we do to this message? He says, here's what you do. Repent and turn around so that your sins may be blotted out. Or that night in the jail, the jailer asked Paul and Silas, what must we do to be saved by your Jesus? Answer, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Now, just hear this. Your faith, the experience that I opened up this sermon with, does not save you. Jesus saves you. See, here's the difference. You can cry out as loud as you want, treading water for someone to come save you. But if there is no objective, real lifeguard out there to come and save you, you're going to drown. If there is no real historical Jesus who was slaughtered and on the third day rose from the dead, we're going to drown all of us for eternity. The Gospel is that 2,000 years ago, Jesus as a substitute, He was subbed for sinners to receive the wrath of God upon Himself. He had no sin for which to be punished. The Apostle Peter, remember him? The one who denied knowing Jesus that horrific night. Decades later, he wrote it this way to the church. He's, he got it. Oh, that's what happened. For Christ also suffered once for the sins of people. It was the righteous one for the unrighteous so that he might bring us to God. So our faith is not the basis of our salvation. Our faith is what connects us sinners to the basis of salvation, which is Jesus Christ Himself. But if that historical Jesus stayed in the tomb, then He did not die as the sinless Lamb of God. He did not put away the punishment that we all deserved for eternity. The Apostle Paul put it this way as we saw it so wonderfully dramatized this morning in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's only the first fruits of those who have presently died in Christ. One day they're going to spring forth. That gospel 
is the power of God unto salvation. 350 years after Christ's death and resurrection, that message is what sprung St. Augustine to eternal life. 1,600 years later, it grabbed a hold of Blaise Pascal. In the 1700s, John Wesley, 30 some odd years ago, me. So now let's go back to our passage. Romans chapter 6. And very briefly, let's look at four realities about the resurrection. First is this. Jesus, that real human being, born of Mary, after being killed, dead long enough to grow hard and cold. You ever touched a loved one? Rose from the dead. You can see it there. Verse 4. Romans 6. Just as Christ was raised from the dead. The second reality we see is that Christ will never die again. He wasn't resuscitated. It wasn't like his heart stopped and okay, we got his heart going again. He was raised to a resurrection life. An immortal, physical existence forever. He triumphed over death. He's no longer mortal. Death will no longer come. Ever. You can see that in verse 9. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. The third reality is this. If you're a person who has come to treasure Jesus Christ personally, then in some profound, mysterious, spiritual way, you were united with Christ in His death. We have died with Christ if we're His. Our sins were punished there. They were, as Paul put it in Colossians, nailed to the cross. In other words, what happened to Jesus in A.D. 33 happened to us vicariously. God took Joe LeMay's sins and He enacted justice fully on Him. And there's no double jeopardy ever. Justice was satisfied. Which brings us to the final thing. We see in Romans 6, if this is true of you, that you have died with Christ, knowing because I'm a believer, I've embraced Him, 
then we shall one day physically be resurrected from the dead to an immortal physical existence just like Jesus has already had that experience in AD 33. It is absolutely coming. Verse 5, see it? For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We shall rise one day and never, ever be sick again. Never, ever die again. Death no longer will have dominion over us. All right. There are lots of strong historical arguments, eyewitness testimonies for the resurrection of Christ. But I've done that before, and I'll do it again someday. I've done it in other Easter sermons. I'm not going to go that way for the rest of our time this morning. But in the brief time left, my main concern is that no one in here just hears the words, Christ is risen, and be unmoved. Don't be a mental assenter. Don't be, I agree with that. Don't be that way. Don't, don't be bland. Yeah, sure, I'm raised in America. This post-Christian culture, we still have the remnants, we do Easter. Don't do that. But embrace Him as a desperate soul as death is rushing at you. Don't be missing on that day when Christ returns and raises from the dead bodily all who have loved His appearing. And for you, who you know Jesus is your Savior, you have embraced Christ, I want to say this, no matter what experiences in life, in work, in sickness, in marriage, in raising children, no matter what you are going through. Oh, this morning, let the words be such deep and overwhelming comfort. Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. He's coming. And if you've died with Christ, you shall also rise with Him. See, it's one thing to have an, uh, an intellectual agreement with Christianity. Like I did all my life until I was 19. It is another thing to have a deep internal encounter with those realities of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's sort of, let me give you an example. A lot of you know my life. so It's sort of like my understanding and agreement with 
people have discs in their back that go out and protrude and they hurt and they have back pain. The way I, the way I dealt with that issue in reality in life six months ago, from the way I am very intimately associated with disc problems in the back today. Because I had an encounter through my wife when her L5 disc exploded on her. And the MRI shows a 14 millimeter extrusion pushing into the sciatic nerve. And that my wife could not sit down for a month and a half for more than a couple minutes. That she would teach her children only lying down on the particular side in order to do homeschooling. Numerous therapeutic uh, appointments I'd had to drive her to. She could not drive from acupuncture to chiropractors to talking to two different neurosurgeons who were positive. You need to have surgery to egoscue therapy she does now. In other words, here's the point. The reality was always, always there about the human body and disc that can do that. And I knew people that had pain and I had sympathy for them. And oh, it must be a bummer. It intrudes your life. But then when it hit me up per close and personal, everything in my knowledge about and feeling about is very different. Nothing changed about the reality of people having back problems where their discs coming out. What changed was my experience of those truths. I came alive to the reality that hit me so intimately through my wife. Okay. That's the goal of this other reality of Easter. Of Christ's death and His resurrection. The goal of those truths is an encounter personally. When it happens, it's called saving faith. Jesus died, in other words, in those who come to a place in their life where they are shaken, not by their wives' L5 disc exploding, but shaken by their own sin and sinfulness. They awaken to a new life in Jesus. They realize that they have died with Christ and that one day they shall rise from the dead just as He did in A.D. 33. Kids, do not assume your parents' culture. Of course you're going to affirm Christ while you're a child. It's culture. Don't assume it. But ask yourself the question. And doesn't kid or adult in here ask yourselves the most intimate and eternity changing question of all? What if it's true? Okay. For 2,000 years, it has been preached that this man. 
Jesus from Nazareth has been raised from the dead. And for five weeks taught people. In one time, over 500 people encountered Him physically after the resurrection. And then He ascended. Okay. It's not true. It's not okay. Well, all right. Christianity is a farce. But here's the question. What if it's true? See, when the shock, not of a disc exploding, but when the shock of that question hits you, and you come away knowing this resurrected Jesus by the Holy Spirit, who then would be dwelling in you, you know Him as your personal Savior. It means you believe and you are saved by what He did on the cross and in His resurrection. And you're saved by the evidence of your faith in Him alone. And then you, in obedience to Jesus, you demonstrate what He did in you publicly through water baptism like we will be doing in a few moments with Lisa Christ's death and resurrection is pictured in water baptism Lisa's death with Jesus and new life in him is pictured through this ordinance that Jesus gave us called water baptism. So let me just explain what we're going to be doing here in a couple minutes. What is happening? This is what's happening. The New Testament is clear that we sinners, when we become a Christian, when we get saved, that that happens through the means of our faith in Christ. Okay. Baptism is not an act that saves us. Now we're going to go back to our text in Romans 6 because it's all over the resurrection in Romans 6 for a moment. And say this, this is what's happening. Water baptism signifies new life in Christ is evident in Lisa. It's evident how? Through her faith, her embrace of Jesus as her Savior. And so in Romans 6, what we see first is that baptism portrays our death in the death of Christ. Listen again to how Paul put this in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death. This is what it means to be a Christian. When Christ died in AD 33, 
When He died, He died our death. Our old, unbelieving, hard-hearted self died on that cross. And here, don't miss this. Don't miss it. And therefore, our future physical death, which is coming to us, okay? Our future physical death will not have the same meaning for us that it would have had if Jesus had not died our death. In other words, if we would have died without being in Christ, then our future physical death would have been the horrible experience of entering into eternal condemnation. As we heard Paul say through Bob this morning, Oh, death, where's your victory? It's gone. Oh, death, where's your sting? It's gone. Because if you're in Christ... He took the sting of death. And when you die, it won't sting like it should have. It will usher you into the presence of Christ and you will be awaiting one day to be raised from the dead, all of us, at one time. So baptism not only signifies our death in Christ, but secondly, it portrays our newness of life in Christ. Romans 6, verse 4 goes on. We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Okay, got to get this, Lisa. I won't keep you under the water. No one stays under the waters of baptism signifying death. We come up out of the water. Because after death comes new life. Here's how Paul wrote it in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me in the life that I now, baptism onward, that I live, I live by ongoing faith in Christ who loved me and gave Himself up for me. The newness of life is the life of ongoing faith until we drop dead one day and meet Him and await that body to be raised. And so, as we baptize Lisa, we are portraying what happened in her coming to new life in Christ. Jesus' death became her death, signified by her being buried under the water of baptism. And at the same moment, Christ's life, resurrection life by the Spirit became her life and it will be signified by her rising up out of the water to new life. This is what it means to be a Christian. And for all of us, we can remember back to our baptism. It means 
we now live our lives in the light of what baptism portrays. New life, persevering faith, battling sin, trusting in God's promises until we drop dead one day. Come, Lisa. Testing one, two. Lisa, do you place all your hope and trust in Jesus Christ and embrace Him alone as your salvation? Yes, yes, I do. Do you believe in His substitutionary death for your sins and His bodily resurrection from the dead for your justification?